Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting new books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week I'm very pleased to say we have a visitor to our shores, Clive Hamilton, who's come all the way from Australia to talk to us, and we'll be talking about his very uh, interesting and provocative and very timely book, Earthmasters, The Dawn of the Age of Climate Engineering. Clive, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, my formal designation is Professor of Public Ethics at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. Uh, I'm best thought of not so much as an academic, perhaps, but as a public intellectual. Uh, I founded a think tank, a progressive think tank in the early 1990s and ran that for many years. And now I spend my time writing books, giving public talks uh, and uh, so on, mostly on matters related to climate change. Mm-hmm. And you spend a lot of time on airplanes, I imagine. Uh, I try not to. So <laughs> I limit that. So this trip to the U.S., I've tried to pack in as much as I can, so I don't need to come back for a while. Yeah, well, again, thanks for being on the show. So tell us why you wrote Earth Masters, The Dawn of the Age of Climate Engineering. Well, I, uh, I wrote a previous book called Requiem for a Species, Why We Resist the Truth of Climate Change, which was published uh, here in the US, and it really was examining uh, exactly that question, what is it that has allowed uh, governments and indeed populations of countries like the United States to ignore or downplay or dismiss the vast body of scientific evidence saying that we're in deep trouble and we need to act quickly. And the gap between what the scientists are saying must be done and what is actually being done continues to grow. Uh, month by month, year by year. Uh, we just, we human beings just passed through 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, the highest level it's been for 3 million years. And so, you know, we are transforming the planet in very dangerous ways and yet we seem unable to respond. And recognising that uh, institutional and political sclerosis uh, a number of scientists uh, said, well, we need a plan B. And they said uh, they started to investigate uh, geoengineering schemes, of which there are quite a range. And so uh, I've obviously studied geoengineering in a lot of depth. And, um, you know, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a very complex and worrying uh, development. Um, so that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. I took your – at one point in the book you say uh, Wikipedia has, I think, 72 different – um, proposals for bio or, or, or yeah, bioengineering and um, or engineering the Earth's atmosphere. So I, I looked them up. Some of them are pretty wacky. Some of them are. Pretty- <laughs> yeah. So this-, them, this sort of big one that uh, that is also wacky, or it's still in the realm of sci-fi, is putting a, a cloud of mirrors yeah, right. in space to deflect some sunlight. So yeah. that- well, that'll come right after jetpacks, I think. So yeah. the uh, so this book uh, covers. The uh, issue of what to do about global warming <clears throat> in a variety of perspectives, one of them is, is actually sort of talking about some of the proposals and, and then ta- talking about how, how they might be implemented in terms of public policy and our inability to, to implement them and perhaps how we might do it. So could you start by saying, uh, uh, so what actually can be done realistically about this in terms of engineering climate? Well, geoengineering is, in its broadest definition, um, intentional 
technological intervention uh, in the climate system designed to counter global warming or to offset some of its effects. And as you say, uh, Marshall, there are a range of schemes, um, but there are probably only sort of six or eight that are sort of taken seriously and are being systematically investigated. Yeah, can you run us through those just really briefly? Is that is that possible? Um, well, or is that too many? <laughs> yeah, let me try. Okay. Okay. So there are sort of fairly straightforward uh, methods that we know about to do with um, the landscape, uh, and particularly creation of biochar, kind of charcoal, which fixes carbon uh, from vegetation and stores it. You know, one hopes for a very long time. There are a whole lot of methods, or a number of methods. Uh, designed to uh, somehow extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And there are a range of schemes here. Uh, one is to just do it directly using a, an array of big metal boxes that suck it out of the atmosphere and fix it, perhaps in the form of calcium carbonate, and then find somewhere safe underground to store it you know, in perpetuity, one hopes. Um, and the, another scheme... Of, uh, which is called a, a, a carbon dioxide removal method as well, is um, so-called um, ocean iron fertilisation, this idea of uh, spreading iron sulphate on patches of ocean because iron is a nutrient needed for marine life. And if this nutrient is missing in a patch of ocean, then you can get very rapid sul- uh, big al- blooms of algae by spreading iron sulphate. And algae as life forms grow by absorbing, among other things, carbon uh, carbon dioxide from the surface waters of the ocean. And when they die, the idea is that they will take their carbon to the bottom of the ocean where it will be stored. So you get it out of the atmosphere and put it in the bottom of the ocean. But probably the headline scheme for geoengineering is not one aimed at getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but at directly countering the warming of the globe. And this is one of a suite of methods known as solar radiation management, and it's called sulfate aerosol spraying. The idea is to mimic the effect of large volcanic eruptions. It's been known for quite a long time that large volcanic eruptions put so much dust and sulfate particles into the atmosphere that they dim the globe for a year or two. And this dimming uh, is really means not, not as much sunlight reaches the Earth and therefore the Earth cools. So the Earth has been shown to cool for perhaps by half a degree but for a year or two as a result of uh, a large volcanic eruption, such as that at Mount Pinatubo in 1991. So the idea is to, instead of leaving it to nature, we would intervene by sending up a fleet of uh, aircraft specially fitted to spray sulfate aerosols into the upper atmosphere, into the stratosphere, and effectively uh, uh, surround the Earth with a layer of uh, tiny particles that would reduce the amount of solar radiation reaching the Earth and thereby cool it. Mm-hmm. So uh, before we talk about whether any of these are practicable and how we might get there, I'm remembering uh, there's a scene in Jurassic Park where the the, uh, the, uh, the Jeff Goldblum character, after learning that what, what, what they have done in terms of uh, engineering or, or bringing back to life by genetic engineering um, uh, dinosaurs, he says, you just really don't mess with Mother Nature because you just don't know what the consequences will be. The system is too complicated. That's one view. Uh, and then there's another view that says that the, the, the climate, that, that the biosphere is extraordinarily robust. 
That is, we are not really in a position to tinker with it very much. That is, we, we can't really change it. And that would suggest that maybe some of these schemes would be uh, um, practicable. Well, what is the sort of general thinking about this? For example, if you put big boxes everywhere that absorbed carbon or you uh, seeded the ocean uh, so that uh, plankton did it, how would you control those things? Well, there are two dimensions to this. One is that uh, some geoengineering methods are relatively benign, um, whereas others are far more risky. I mean, um, trying to regulate the temperature of planet Earth with a solar shield uh, would have all sorts of ramifications and impacts of, of which we can only have the vaguest idea. Um, so that's one dimension. They, the, the schemes themselves are, are variable in their, in their risks and also in their uh, possible effectiveness. But there's another dimension too, and you can see amongst geoengineering scientists or climate scientists in general, um, a different, although they all agree, of course, on climate change uh, and its causes, and the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Nevertheless, their understanding of the Earth is informed by some really quite radically different, um, I don't know what you call them, sort of orientation toward mm-hmm. world and life. And so some uh, climate scientists are very gung-ho and say, look, you know, we've engineered every other environment we live in. Why can't we engineer planet Earth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are certain un- there are things we don't know yet, but you know our research uh, will solve those problems, and we can go in there and, and and you know after all, when you engineer a system, you you do it and you see what the problems are, you tinker with it, you fix it. So what's the problem? But then down at the other end, and of course there are a bunch somewhere in between. You've got scientists who say, look, the Earth is astonishingly complex. Um, we don't know how it's going to react. Um, the, 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 the paleoclimate record shows that, as Wally Brocker said, the, uh, the Earth is an ornery beast that overreacts <laughs> with small budgets. So you've got these two very different conceptions of what the Earth is and mm-hmm. how it operates. And um, obviously, if you're at the Wally Brocker end, that the Earth is very unstable, unpredictable, you know, has its own kind of uh, yeah, unstable psychology, if I can put it that way then tinkering with the Earth system as a whole is an extremely hazardous uh, thing to uh, uh, think about. But then you've got this, this, this whole kind of uh, uh, Western technological notion that we can and have a right to dominate nature and we have uh, or could have the technological means, so we should just go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one one question I had about about these schemes is that, uh, you know, if you think about it scientifically, one of the things we like to do before we roll out a technology is test it. Um, and we usually do it in a lab. How do you test any of these to see what their effect might be? I suppose they have massive computer models and things. But how, how do you test whether, you know, the box approach or the seeding the ocean approach or whatever approach it might be? would um, yield the results that you want it to in a convincing way. So people would say, yeah, you know, that's going to work. Well, it depends on the technology. Uh, sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere through metal boxes and burying it underground is something you can do on a small scale um, and see if it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there is a problem with that is if you're burying it underground, uh, it, it has to stay there for thousands of years. Isn't it? If the carbon dioxide in one form or another leaks out, then it's all pointless. Um, 
But others, uh, ocean iron fertilization, for example, uh, uh, cultivating algal blooms to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it to the bottom of the ocean, is more tricky because the, you know the oceans are enormously complex. Yeah, so how it would affect marine life uh, in general is really something that's not well understood. So, for example, you might get a tremendous algal bloom behind the ship where you're spreading the sulfate particles, iron sulfate. But uh, there's a real danger of what's known as nutrient stealing, that mm. the algae that blooms in that area uh, steal nutrients from adjacent patches of ocean and uh, so marine life actually declines there. So to get a good sense of that would require a huge amount of research. Mm-hmm. When it comes to you know the headline scheme, sulfate aerosol spraying is surrounding the earth with a layer of sulfate particles, you, we would really have no idea of how that would work uh, without actually doing it. You can't, you know, do that over, you know, uh, a part of Nebraska and say, well, <laughs> it's called Nebraska. How about a part of New York first? I'm from yeah. that area of the country. Let's try New York before Nebraska. Let's <laughs> try <laughs> New York. And uh, you couldn't do it over New York and say, hey, this works, and now we'll do it on the wor- over the world because you're talking about changing the total uh, climate system of the planet. And so... In that case, we wouldn't know until we'd done it. Not only would we not know until we'd done it, we wouldn't know until we'd done it. It's estimated for at least 10 years because if you've got uh, sulfate aerosol spraying changing the planet's climate, then that adds to, of course, natural variability, which we we know the climate system is very complicated, and also the effects of uh, global warming itself from carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions. So we'd need at least 10 years of implementing, uh, putting in place this global solar shield before we had enough data to separate out the effects of the solar shield from the effects of natural variability and uh, the effects of human-induced climate change Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So we might become stuck with it. Um, Well, this is precisely my concern. I mean, for example, if you're going to put an aerosol into the Earth's atmosphere, uh, and let's say it does work, aren't you committed to that for all time then if you don't draw back? Uh, the, the amount of carbon emissions, or is that part of the plan? Like this is just going to be a kind of temporary band-aid and we're actually going to reduce carbon emissions so that when it goes away, we'll be all right. Well, that's what most scientists working on it say, that their objective is to is to essentially buy some time to suppress global warming and therefore uh, uh, offset some of the worst effects of climatic change while the world gets its act together mm-hmm. um, and while it gets its act, to get, act together technologically or politically. Yeah, that um, seems to me to be a huge bet, though, a huge and risky bet, because the world has never really gotten its act in order, at least. Well, I mean, I suppose optimists might say that it has in various ways, but uh, it's, uh, it's hard to argue that on, on, a, on, a, on a scale like this that the, that the world has come together. Well, the, the risk, and look, on the one hand, there are some positive things happening uh, in the climate area. Um, you know, China's massive investment in renewable energy technology. Um, certain nations are promoting wind power, solar power, and so on and so forth. So that there, there are some uh, signs of hope, but the, the but the factors that work against that are so overwhelming. I mean, of course, we went through four hundred parts per million. We continue to grow, e- even if China in say, 50, 20 years, reaches a peak of emissions and then declines, and we've just got India coming up behind mm-hmm. and it's going to repeat China. Um, so it's a pretty bleak prospect. So, 
So um, the problem with buying time is that uh, the buying time argument is that um, we may become habituated to uh, solar radiation management and, and you're going to have some powerful forces who will prefer solar radiation management uh, as a substitute for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So the danger is that if we, you know, okay, we've got this solar shield up there, we've suppressed the temperature by a degree or two, you know, things aren't sort of uh, going in such a bad direction as we thought. So we continue to burn fossil fuels and fill the atmosphere with carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. So that if we run into problems with our solar field shield, let's say, you know, we discover it destroys the ozone layer, which is a, poss- you know, which is a potentiality, or there's some global conflict because, you know, it, it fixes the United States' uh, climate, but it ruins, you know, India, Pakistan, and we decide, you know, we, there's pressure to, to take down the solar shield, then there's this massive amount of global warming that we've just suppressed. It hasn't gone away. We've just suppressed mm-hmm. it. Right, right. Carbon dioxide is still there. And so if we take down the solar shield, it all comes rushing back enormously quickly. Then yeah. we're really in trouble. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that, a good historical example would be nuclear power. We knew that nuclear power was somewhat dangerous due to uh, what it leaves uh, in its trail, but um, there are places now that can't do without it. I mean, France can't give up nuclear power tomorrow. France can't give up nuclear power at all. No, it relies on nuclear power for some eighty percent of its uh, electricity. Yeah. So, supply. Yeah. So it, it seems to be to be a, t- a tremendous problem with any of these schemes. But and then the other problem. Let's talk a little bit about policy and how to make it and how to implement it. Uh, you would need a scale of cooperation on the international level that we have never seen. Is that is that true? At least it seems to me. Well, in an ideal world, uh, to do uh, geoengineering relatively safely and relatively democratically, we would need global co- cooperation. Um, and in a way, there's a strong incentive for all countries, if there were some global process, to participate in it and not try to undermine and destroy it, as is the case uh, with the Kyoto Protocol, for example. Mm-hmm, yeah. But um, geoengineering is different, um, whereas to tackle global greenhouse gas emissions, you have to get some agreement to act on the part of all of the major polluting nations. In the case of geoengineering, one major nation or even one mid-sized nation could, could do it. They could be up and doing it in the next few years. Right. Um, even, you know, it, it, this is the problem with some forms of geoengineering. They're just um, uh, cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, sulfate aerosol spraying right. is thought to be much cheaper than reducing global greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's a significant concern of, um, of unilateral action on the part of one nation, which, uh, you know, obviously has enormous geostrategic implications. Mm-hmm. You know, one nation is controlling the world's climate. And what do other nations think about that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there any way, for example, uh, with the uh, shield idea to control the dispersion of, of this stuff in such a way that it wouldn't cause um, a, ser- a series of international incidents as it drifted over your borders or... Well, it's not so much the pollution itself because it, the whole idea when you put it there in the upper atmosphere, in the, in the, you know, the, the, the atmosphere is divided into the troposphere, the lower part, mm-hmm. which is where all the weather happens because um, in, in the troposphere, the first 10 or 12 kilometres uh, of air, you know, the weather goes horizontally and vertically or air moves horizontally and vertically, whereas when you get into the stratosphere above that, the air only moves horizontally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... 
you stick the uh, sulfate particles up there, and, it, and the whole point is to disperse it quickly around the globe as a whole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's not so much the fact that uh, you know the sunlight has been dimmed over various countries, although that is a potential problem for photosynthesis. Um, it's more that the whole climate system of the world as a whole uh, is uh, is changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, one hopes change for the better, uh, but not necessarily for everyone, because although it would have a fairly uniform effect around the world in terms of reducing global temperatures, the impact on global precipitation on rainfall patterns would be more variable. And so with sulfate aerosol spraying, you may get uh, an increase in precipitation in some areas, but a decline in others. And so this obviously opens up um, the, uh, the risk for uh, global disputes over geoengineering schemes. Right. Well, I mean, it seems to me to be um, a great risk to what we call pedestrianly, if that's a word, sovereignty, because you're having another nation basically change the weather over your nation. And, and that's not usually considered to be kosher. It's definitely not kosher. I mean, uh, we know that there's a long um, interest uh, within the military in controlling the weather for hostile purposes. Uh, this, uh, so you can see the kind of potential. Yeah. I mean, you know, if uh, Napoleon or Hitler could have... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> up Russia. Yeah, uh, the world history could have been uh, quite different. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yes, um, I, this is why, my, in my view, uh, the absence of global governance of geoengineering research, uh, leading potentially to deployment, you know, two three decades down the track, is really uh, a serious concern, and why the efforts of people uh, who are engaged in this worried about the kinds of risks I've talked about should focus on promoting forms of glo- global governance that mm-hmm. uh, give an opportunity for all nations and particularly uh, those that are vulnerable, uh, in poor countries that are vulnerable to the effects of climate change and geoengineering should be engaged in, um, in the process of regulating and governing geoengineering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, are there any efforts to move in that direction? I mean, I suppose there are. Can you talk about them? Global governance is obviously something that scares the pants off a lot of Americans. I can say that with great assurance. Uh, but schemes in which uh, the, much of the world cooperates in order to get this thing done. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, um, there are some early moves towards this. For example, the uh, the London Convention, which regulates uh, dumping in the ocean, of which and the U.S. is a signatory of that. I mean, the U.S. has an interest in stopping other countries dumping waste from their ships in you know in near the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, the there are moves uh, in the at the London Convention by a number of countries to uh, to regulate uh, geoengineering experiments, which would involve. A, Kind of ocean dumping, dumping yep. you know, iron sulfate uh, into into the ocean, for example, or lime as a as another geoengineering scheme to uh, account for the effects of acidification. Also, at the Convention on Biological Diversity, there have been a couple of resolutions which have been aimed at uh, not so much banning but imposing uh, sort of license conditions on uh, those who want to carry out experiments in ocean fertilization or other forms of geoengineering that uh, affect the oceans. Uh, Now, the United States is not a signatory to the Convention on Biological Diversity, 
but you can see that it certainly has an interest in uh, making sure that uh, you know China, for example, doesn't start large-scale experimentation on uh, yeah. to, to regulate the chemical composition of the ocean. So I would have thought that the United States, despite this kind of paranoid fear of the UN in some quarters, <laughs> um, would uh, see that it has a strong interest in participating in some kind of global government. Yeah, yeah. The American attitude toward the UN and global governance is sort of contradictory because, on the one hand, uh, m- many American politicians, and I even think most Americans, will say that the UN is completely powerless and worthless. And then, on the other hand, they will be very afraid of it. I don't really, I don't really understand how those two ideas fit together. But um, one of the things you mentioned does seem to me like it is practicable, and that is some sort of international agreement on experimentation because we already have that with nuclear weapons. That one worked. Yeah, we do. Um, we do have uh, international agreements to regulate certain kinds of activities of which the, the U.S. is, you know, a, a vigorous uh, participant. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think that you know, the powers that be in the U.S. will um, uh, override that, the kind of uh, populist paranoia that, about the U.N. that uh, is present in, in some quarters because it will be seen to be in the United States' interest to... to um, to, to have a role to play. I mean, if other countries are uh, engaged in some cooperative effort on geoengineering research and possible deployment, then the U.S. and certainly the U.S. military would want to have an interest in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And are there ongoing experiments now on a small scale that we could look to? And, and, and another question is, who funds this sort of research? Well, there are a few experiments in various fields going on. I mean, in biochar experimentation going on. Uh, there, um, there have been attempts to carry out experiments in sulfate aerosol spraying, which have come to grief so far. Um, but uh, although a couple have happened in Russia, and of course there's um, there've been an, a series of experiments, some respectable and well regulated, and some by cowboys carried out on ocean iron fertilisation. Um, but what we're seeing is. Uh, 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 we're seeing venture capitalists and people with their eye on a pot of money being drawn to geoengineering as a as a uh, you know as a sort of front new frontier of mm-hmm. investment. But there are also some people who are much more serious who are concerned about uh, global climate change and see geoengineering as as something that is going to attract a lot of attention and interest. And so, for example, Bill Gates is is um, uh, investing quite a bit in geoengineering research and uh, and in a couple of companies uh, that are researching geoengineering and taking out patents. In fact, uh, Bill Gates' name is on a couple of uh, patents uh, issued by the U.S. Patent Office over geoengineering technologies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we're about out of time, but I want to ask one final question, and that is this. the um, Well, it's actually not the final question. There'll be one more, but... I suppose somebody could argue that even speaking about geoengineering projects in a kind of hopeful way creates a kind of hazard, and that is that even before they exist, if they can exist, you're already encouraging people not to cut back their carbon emissions. People will be saying, well, you know, these engineers are really smart, and they're going to figure it out, much in the same way I think the French probably thought, well, you know, this nuclear waste, it's really bad, but heck, we're really smart. We're going to figure it out. We'll get rid of it. We'll jettison it into space or something, which never happened. Um, are you worried about this at all? I think this is one of the major anxieties that uh, once we head 
down this path, uh, the it, it will it will gather around it a, a powerful constituency. We can all already see some conservative political forces in the U.S. starting to say that hey, geoengineering can get us out of this mess. You know, we don't have to accept what these environmentalists are saying about the need to shift to renewable energy. We can use American ingenuity to mm-hmm. tackle this technologically. So it's kind of the techno fix to end all techno fixes. Uh, and as you know, a techno, a techno fix is a technological solution to a social problem. And and so the the political uh, and economic allure of geoengineering, I think, is going to be very powerful. And uh, the more powerful it becomes, the less attention will be directed towards reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's true. I mean... I guess I would say, given my cursory reading of the press, I don't read it terribly closely, is that geoengineering projects uh, are not exactly front-page news here yet. People don't talk about them a lot. They talk about the Kyoto Protocols and these other things. They talk about greenhouse gas emissions and clean coal and fracking and other things. But they're not really talking about engineering the Earth's atmosphere. But I can easily see how there would be interest in this and, um, and how it could kind of lull people into a sense of, security that that you know we're going to fix this eventually so jesus we shouldn't we shouldn't worry let's go buy another suv kind of thing uh and i I guess i'm a little worried about that well and that's why i wrote the book because yeah i mean in pretty much every country the surveys that have been done suggest that perhaps less than five percent of the population knows what geoengineering is Mm -hmm. um but Everyone will know what it is in 10 years' time. I'm, I'm certain of that. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this book because I wanted to help frame public understanding and thinking about geoengineering because at the moment it's been determined very much by a small group of North American scientists who are promoting geoengineering research uh, very strongly. And I think there are a lot of risks and dangers. And uh, so I'm keen for a wide variety of, uh, of people in civil society to learn about geoengineering and get engaged because it's not going to go away. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. People, people have to pay attention to it in, in a serious-minded way and, and not be terribly frightened by it um, or terribly positive about it because, you know, I mean, I think any, any engineer will tell you that if you operate within design constraints and you make a choice, it's always a trade-off. You're not yeah, just it's, There's no just win-win situation in engineering. Yeah. You're, you're going to um, suffer something. So anyway, we've taken up a lot of your time, Clive. Let me ask you our traditional final question. What are you working on now? Well, really, I can't let go of this question because uh, <laughs> you know, at the end of the book, I, I, uh, I talk a bit more philosophically. I ask, you know, I ask, well, what does it mean for human beings at the beginning of the 21st century to start seriously talking about taking control of the climate system of the earth as a whole and regulating it in perpetuity to me it represents a radical transition in what we are as beings and our relationship to planet earth so it's really exploring those kinds of questions further that uh, is going to occupy me for the next little while yeah i mean actually historians some historians what are called um uh Big history historians have talked about this for some time, and I think they, you know, we're in the Holocene now, and they talk about the Homocene. That is the <laughs> yeah. moment at which, yeah, yes. the moment at which humans are really taking control of the, of the geology of the of of, of the Earth. Um, and uh, 
Um, actually, some of these people are from Australia. David Christian, for example, is a pioneer in this sort of stuff. Uh, so I'm sure you know about that literature. But anyway, I want to say um, to everybody who tuned in, thank you very much. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And uh, today we've been talking with Clive Hamilton about his book, Earth Masters, the Dawn of the Age of Climate Engineering. So thank you for listening. But I especially want to thank Clive for being on the show today from New York. Thank you very much, Clive. Thanks, Marshall. It's been a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye.